Happy to be here with you today, Vintage Church Sunday morning gathering. We are blessed um, to have the Word of God, to be able to open the Word of God, and to be able to know enough that we trust the Word of God. And um, His Word is sufficient for us today, as it was yesterday, as it will be tomorrow, and I hope that that is something that you you lean on today. Today we're going to start in Romans 3. <clears throat> Over the next few weeks we're going to come to the end of this depravity section of the book of Romans. I mean, not completely, but this section, as I told you when we started in um, Romans chapter 1, it goes all the way through 320. Paul is describing um, the ineptitude of man, and so we're sort of coming to the close of that, but uh, just in case you hadn't gotten enough of that, there's going to be a little bit, little bit more. You remember what we've been studying the last few weeks, you've seen uh, that we are sinners, if you didn't know that already. We are in desperate need of a Savior, unable to obey, unable to seek unable to know unless God steps in and steps down and changes our heart and saves us. Paul, in the last part of this section on depravity, is going to give us sort of a review of all the things he's said about the condition of mankind, starting in Romans 3.10. But in Romans 3, 1 through 8, <clears throat> well, really starting in Romans 3, 9, Romans 3, 1 through 8, Paul stops, <clears throat> and it sort of seems out of place, but before he gives these review, this review of what's going on, he wants to give us, um, he wants to answer some questions, <clears throat> excuse me, for the Jewish people that might have popped up as they heard what he was teaching to them. So today and next week, we're going to look at these questions that have arisen or may arise from the Jewish people, from religious people, as they view what Paul has said about their ineptitude, as they view what Paul has said about their inability. And the reason that Paul believes these questions are going to arise and he sort of answers them without, he sort of asks these questions without them being asked is because he is basically, as they know it, changing the institution and the ordinances of worship. He's changing what they've known, um, at least what they've been relying on, what the vast majority of the Jewish people were relying on as it concerned finding God. And so he knows that these questions are going to arise, and, and he asks for us some really good questions that I think are worth looking at, I think that are worth answering. We're going to look in Romans 3, verses 1 through 8, but we'll read Verses 1 through 4 today. So we have all this about no, Romans 2, the end of Romans 2. There's, circumcision doesn't matter, right? Circumcision is not what, what it's about, the physical circumcision. You know, heritage, it doesn't matter. Heritage is not what it's about. Belonging to Abraham is not what it's about. And then Paul sort of starts chapter 3 off by asking this. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way, to begin with, 
the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God, what if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. This is the word of the Lord. Will you pray with me today? Lord God, we love you. We are so thankful that you love us, that you step down, that you intercede on our behalf. That you love us and <clears throat> you love us enough not to give up on us, not to not to quit on us even when we head down paths that are far and distant from your will and from your glory. But Lord, for your children, you seek and you pursue us, you restore us, you make us whole. And so during this time of the year and during every time of the year, God, we should be ever so grateful that God has stepped down and he has intervened and he has shown us a better way than formalism. He has shown us a better way than legalism. He has shown us a better way than doing, doing, doing. And that is by trusting in His Son, your Son, the one Savior of the world. Would you teach us today from your word? Help us to be changed by it. Help us to be renewed today. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. If you've been in our sermons over the last few weeks, you probably have recognized a common theme one thing that I've dealt with specifically is a false sense of security that comes from being a religious person. Specifically, we've seen that with a religious person or with the religious Jews who were trusting in uh, heritage or who were trusting in good works. I want to tell you, just as a means of testimony, I spent much of my younger life worried about my salvation for the wrong reasons and confident in my salvation for the wrong reasons, or confident in my salvation because of works or because of proofs that I had thought were acceptable proofs that I belonged to God. I prayed prayers. I went to the altar. I was baptized twice. I sought counsel from pastors, from teachers, from my parents, from friends. But it wasn't until I was in my early 20s that I found assurance for the right reasons. Up until that point, I had lived on such an unstable foundation that was a mixture of good works and my family being Christians and my church history and my involvement in the church and all of those things that I was trusting in. Religious behavior and religious understanding will create a facade for us. It will create a facade for us. Having come from a Christian household, I learned, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> having come from a Christian household, I learned that uh, doing right and following God was the thing I should go for. And when I did right and followed God, I leaned heavily on that to say, look at me, I'm saved. And when I didn't, when I didn't follow the Lord, when my moral behavior was not up to par, I leaned on that and said, how can I even be a Christian? Moral behavior and lineage, church attendance, 
um, participation in religious things, friends, can be a hollow shell. A hollow shell of what faith truly should look like. The Jewish people of the time, much like the Jewish people today and Christians of our time, were fixated on moralistic teaching. I think the main issue was and it's something that we addressed last week, um, and it's a reason that they were so fixated on this moralistic behavior is because they had an embarrassment of riches as it pertained to God. They had an embarrassment of riches, and they were free. And sometimes when we have an abundance of anything, what happens is we think of creative ways to screw it up. Do you understand that? I mean, it, in... In our country, as a country, governmental systems and, and with capitalism and all of these things, when we have an abundance of anything, it, a lot of times it gives us t- enough time to think of creative ways to mess it up. And so they had abundance. They had an abundance of God. They had abundance of, of his truth. Uh, our, wor- our verse today, and we'll talk about that more in a second, says they were given the oracles of God. And yet, in their own way, they had just enough time to find creative ways to mess it up. Today, I want to, I want to look at these questions that Paul asks. These questions as to how Paul dealt with these religious Jewish people. How they would respond um, and, and how they would respond as the gospel was Presented. So let's ask, I think these questions will be helpful for us today too, not just for Jewish people, but for religious people, especially if you tend to lean more towards moralistic or legalistic behavior. The first question is, what was the advantage of the Jew? Chapter 3, verse 1. What was the advantage of the Jew? Paul begins answering some questions here before they actually are asked, but he knows what the people who will read this letter will think. So he, uh, so when we see the word then here, then what is the advantage of Jew? We connect it back to the last thought. And that last thought we studied last week uh, is this. And it's that circumcision has no value. That moralistic, legalistic, uh, moral behavior has no value if the heart is not circumcised. If the heart is not changed. Basically, in the previous thoughts Paul has given us, he is nullifying what it means to be a Jew, what it means to be a religious person as they had constructed it. So he asked, why are there Jews? If God's plan was for Jesus to be the redemption of all of mankind, the way, the truth, and the life all along, then why are there Jews? So he says, what advantage is it to being a Jew? Now, actually, there are several advantages to being a Jew. And Paul will talk about uh, just a few here loosely. He'll talk about two specifically and one kind of loosely. And then in Romans 9, he talks about uh, more of these advantages of being a Jew. And what are some of those advantages of being a Jew? Romans 9, he said the Jews were the adopted people of God. They were adopted people of God. That's an advantage of being a Jew. They beheld the glory of God. They beheld God literally put his glory in the middle of the tabernacle. He tabernacled amongst them. They had the covenant. They were God's covenant people. They had the law. They knew the will of God. Remember, we talked about that with the law. They knew the will of God. And they were the children of the promise. They were 
the children of the promise to Abraham. They were the people chosen out and had all of the riches that went with it, both spiritual and physical. There were a few in our text today, right? Our text today said they had the faithfulness and the truthfulness of God. God is faithful. God is true. Paul said God is true and everyone else is a liar. And then he said something weird, but it's really not so weird, and it's vastly important that we take hold of that today. What advantage is it to be a Jew? And the main one, the best one, is that they were entrusted with the oracles of God, to which I think is most important. They received the oracles of God. This word is literally logia, which comes from the word logos. They received, what is that? Do you know what logos means? They received the very words of God. The very word of God. Acts 7, this is used to describe the literal word of God given to Moses. They are divine sayings of God handed directly to the authors of the text. The Jewish people had many blessings and many advantages as be- from being a Jew, for being God's people. But above all, their greatest advantage was having the divine sayings, the logia, the word of God. The New Testament authors and those who, can, who, who, um, who studied the Hebrew text, the historians who knew the Hebrew text, and it's generally and widely accepted that the Hebrew Scriptures were the inspired, God-breathed Word of God. That is why you see in 2 Timothy 3, 6, 7, 3, 16 and 17 that all Scripture is God-breathed. Literally, that means the Hebrew text of Scripture. That means that the, that means the the Bible, the Old Testament. Now I can give you a, a um, an apologetic as to why I think all Scripture, even the New Testament, is God breathed, and we can talk about that at a different time. But that's not what this sermon is about today. They had the oracles of God, the logia, the divine inspi- the divinely inspired, divine utterances of God. And above all the blessings of God that the Jewish people had, their greatest advantage was knowing what God thought and knowing the plans that God had for them as a people. Remember, last week we mentioned they had an embarrassment of riches as far as religious things were concerned. They were surrounded by the teachings of God. They had been given the promises of God. They had been protected by God over and over again. They had been saved by God and kept by God and had the very words of God. In Isaiah 5, the prophet Isaiah says, What more, as he's speaking for the Lord, what more could I have given them? What more could I have done? And yet surprisingly, even with that embarrassment of riches, they leaned on, you guessed it, not God. Now the entire nation, of course, was not depraved. And there were those who were still being saved by grace through faith, as that has been the plan of God since the beginning of time and the way to God since the beginning of time. But as a whole, uh, God's people had strayed from their intended path. Their greatest advantage was knowing the heart and mind of God, but as we have come to see in our own lives, knowing about and having a wealth of revelation does not always lead to genuine faith. Seeing all of those advantages that these religious Jews had and seeing all of the spiritual advantages that we have, it makes me think of a few things which I would like you to consider today. 
availability of the gospel and exposure to the gospel are not always key indications of one's future salvation. Availability to the gospel and exposure to the gospel. And you may say, you may first think of yourself, and then secondly, you probably think of your kids, and you say, Well, Bryce, train up a child in the way he should go, and he's, when he's old, he will not depart from it. And I hold true to that. I believe that. If you train your child up in the way of the gospel, if you, if you give them the richness of Christ, if you uh, entrust God's word to them regularly and daily and spiritually, then I believe that they won't depart from it. But I will tell you there have been a lot of people who have been equally exposed to the gospel of Christ, who have been equally given uh, and have equal availability to the gospel who have rejected that gospel. Being exposed to the gospel and the gospel being available does not always equal true uh, or, or a future faith. Now I'm not saying that we should be like, well, if, if that's the case, let's just Dial it down a little bit and see what happens. Or, or maybe, you know, maybe Sunday is enough of the Word of God for my family. Maybe Sunday is enough of the Word of God for me personally. There is a key here, friends. There is a key here that makes the first more true in our lives. There were two little ideas here that I want to give you. And the first is that availability and exposure does not always equal future salvation. But there is a key, and you're going to be so shocked when you hear it, because I'm sure you've never heard it before. There is a key here, that was sarcasm, there is a key here that makes the first more true in our lives, the lives of our children, the lives of our friends, the lives of our family. And the key is the Spirit of God. Dependence on the Spirit of God is the key. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2, the man without the Spirit does not accept the things of God. That's, he's been exposed to it. He has, uh, it's available to him, but he doesn't have the Spirit, and so he doesn't accept it. He, said, he goes on in that verse, they are foolishness to him because he is what? Do you remember at the end of 1 Corinthians 2? He is not spiritually discerned. If the Bible is the language of God, then the Spirit of God is the Rosetta Stone. Trying to love the Word of God and the things of God without depending on the Spirit of God is like a person with kids trying to tell a, a person without kids trying to tell a person with kids how to raise their kids, or a blindfolded man trying to do the play by play at a sporting event. So, how do we unlock the knowledge of God and how do we unlock the availability that we have to God, uh, of God? through his word and through uh, a, a massive amount of uh, godly church gatherings in our country and, and uh, church, uh, I mean, and, and Christian organizations and all of the things that we have, this abundance, this embarrassment of wealth we have from a spiritual standpoint, it is through the Spirit of God. It is through the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God is the key to understanding the Word of God. He is, after all, a part of the Trinity and Therefore, is the Word of God. So how do we do that? How do we do that? We can't just say, well, the Spirit of God, that's, that makes sense for everybody, right? Here's how, and it's, it's vastly important. It is vastly important. Because I will tell you, understanding and knowing the Bible without a, a prayer life that is dependent on the Spirit of God will lead you to the man at the end of 1 Corinthians 2. He is the man who does not understand, who does not follow, because he is not spiritually discerned. 
There is a reason between being, there is a, a difference between being biblically discerned and spiritually discerned. Prayer, along with the study of Scripture, is the first real true proof that we are becoming spiritually discerned. Dependence upon the Spirit of God. Prayer gives us understanding and trust puts us into relationship with. Prayer gives us understanding. Prayer allows us to know and, and see the world and, and, and have clarity as to why things happen. Have clarity as to why bad things happen. Have clarity as to why people sin who know better and all of these things. But trust is what puts us into relationship with the Spirit of God. We trust Him. We trust Him. We don't just understand that God has a plan for us. We don't try to formulate and fabricate and make our own plans when we're getting scared, when we're getting nervous, when we're getting anxious, but we trust in the plans of God. Some of us in this room, me included at times, have never given a chance, had never given the Spirit of God a chance to show up in their personal life because they get so scared so quickly that they make moves and they make and they position and they jockey themselves into the appropriate position to save themselves. We do this with, with work situations. We do this with personal situations. We do this with our children. We do this in every area of our lives. We never give a chance for our trust to be put on display as a reward for our trust. Prayer is what helps us to understand the nature of the Spirit of God, but trust is what puts us in a relationship with Him. And then another idea here that you should understand about following and trusting the Spirit of God is that rejecting things that are not of the Spirit is what helps us stay close and connected in that right relationship, in that right understanding. Rejection of worldly wisdom and tactics. Friends, you know, if you want to if you want to stay close to the things of the spirit of God, to know the spirit of God, to walk in the spirit of God, we must do everything we can to root out the things of the world in our own lives, in the lives of the church, in the lives of our friends, and what we're willing to accept in our politics and what we're willing to accept in any in our in what we watch in any area of our lives. Friends, you need to hear this. I believe that the Lord can redeem. I believe that the Lord does uh, make all things new. But not everything is redeemable. Not everything is redeemable. Horoscopes and tarot cards, they are not redeemable. Anything of that nature is not redeemable. I believe things that start in a, in a, in a spiritual way, in a spiritual field, in another religion, Eastern religion, or, or uh, Buddhist, Muslim, uh, whatever, you wanna, whatever path you want to go, I don't believe they're redeemable. Now listen, I know, I, know that it's, I know that there are different views on different things, but some things I just won't do. And if you do them, that's fine. But the things that are connected to... Uh, religious things like, okay, so, so I'll just, I'll put it out there and it's going to hurt for a little bit, but I love you. Like, I'm, I'm not going to do yoga. And I don't think there's, I don't think there's anything wrong with you doing yoga. And you can stretch and you can do all of those things. 
But when, you're, when there's hums and meditations and different things like that, those things are connected to uh, Eastern sort of practices. And I don't think there's anything wrong with the practice of healthy stretching. But I think that something, and that's just a preference for me. I'm not, I'm not saying that, you know, if you might happen to be a yoga, certified yoga instructor in here, uh, I'm not saying that you're living in sin or anything like that. I'm just saying that's a practice for me. That's something that, that I do because, because I think, for me, that's, that's something that I do to reject, to reject the things of the world. Some things are redeemable. A lot of things are redeemable, but not all things are redeemable. So we follow the Spirit of God by trusting in the things of the Spirit, by, by seeking out the things of the Spirit of God. Friends, you need to, you need to hear this. You need to hear this. We, there, are, there are so many things, there are so many things that we go to first and put and lean into heavy before we actually lean into the things that the Bible calls are the spiritual things, the Spirit of God things. I think it would be, I think it would be wise for us to pray, for us to act upon, for us to, have, to trust in, for us to take deep dependence upon, and for us to root out the things that are not of the Spirit of God in our own lives. So what advantage is it to be a Jew? Second question he asks is very important too. He says, does the faithlessness of man nullify the faithfulness of God? What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? Now here is the objection that Paul was answering with this point. Why is there a Jewish nation at all if this is the way God had intended for it to be? If circumcision doesn't matter and ancestry doesn't matter, <clears throat> if we have rejected God, as you say, doesn't his promise to Abraham still stand? Can, God cannot reject his people because he is true to himself and he must keep his promise to Abraham. So how can this you say about circumcision not mattering and, and about uh, ancestry not mattering if God has made a promise and he must keep his promises? That's a really good question that Paul asked himself. If God made these promises to a nation and then from their perspective has stripped them away, has stripped the major tenets of these promises away, then has God not gone back on his promise? Which Paul answers in an undeniably and an emphatically no. It's meginatoi. May it never be. He says, may it never be. God would never lie. He would never go back on his promises. Which, as I look at these, I think of two truths that I have found so so rewarding and so fulfilling as I look at this study, as I look at this like dynamic that we've been looking at over the last few weeks. The first is this. God is sovereign, and because he is sovereign, everything he does is right. Everything he does is right. So God in, uh, in Abraham's time can make a promise to his people, and in the time of Jesus can make it seem like in our finite minds that there is contradiction there, but God who is over all, who is not created, who is in the heavens and does what he pleases, he is sovereign, so if he does it, it must be right. That's important. That's important. Because here, here's why it's important. And this is not blind faith. We have enough in the Bible to believe without 
blindly believing. Here's why it's important. Because there is a level of our faith that needs to say, because I said so is enough. Okay? Now with your parents as a kid and with your kids right now, with you being a parent, I think because I said so is not the greatest parenting tactic all the time. But there are some times where because I said so must be enough. And for the Christian, this is one of them. Because God said so. But the other truth that can kind of bring this around full circle that's helpful for you and it's helpful for me is this. That if God is true to himself and if God is sovereign and he has a plan and he did make a covenant with Abraham, then he must have a plan for his covenant people at some point. He has not abandoned them completely. He must have a plan for his covenant people. As a matter of fact, later on in Romans, Romans 9 and Romans 10 and Romans 11, we will see that God does have a plan and God does plan on fulfilling his promise. He is going to, uh, he is planning on filling, fulfilling his promise in a future way to a Jewish nation in a way that there is much argument about and we'll try to do our best to sort of dissect later. Luckily, I can kick that can down the road for a little bit. What we find as we look closely to as we look closely is that it was not god though who became unfaithful but it was his people where he wanted closeness and unity with them they wanted a hands off approach until they needed him does it sound familiar where he wanted genuine faith and obedience they wanted tangible strict rules that offered only unstable confidence they built their house on the sandy land as the old little Christian uh, children's song goes. Don't build your house on the sandy land. Don't build it too near the shore. Might look kind of nice, but you'll have to build it twice. You'll have to build your house once more. You've never heard that song before? All of you are looking at me like I'm crazy. I know Summer has. Must have been a boulevard thing. They had built their house on a sandy land. Just in case you are left hanging, the next line is, you better build your house on a rock. Okay, there you go. Um, They had built their house on a sandy land as only evidently the song that only Summer and I in this world know. And the gospel came and exposed their religious fallacy, and it came crumbling down. There is a, in my study, I found this story of the Queen Mary. The Queen Mary was one of the, the greatest uh, passenger liners of its time. It went on for years and years and years. It served before World War II, taking people from uh, one country to another, to America. I can't remember which one country. I think it was London or England, uh, to America. Um, but uh, it served, uh, it served as a passenger liner, and then in World War II, it served to carry ships, uh, ships, not ships, troops uh, across the ocean. And, and the Queen Mary went on after that and served again as a passenger liner after World War II. Well, it was finally retired. I mean, it was slow and, and draining money. And, you know, of course, they had uh, Carnival came along. I don't know that that to be true. But anyway, uh, it, was, it was draining money, and so they retired it. And what they, it's, a, it's a National Historic uh, Registered Building, ship. It's in uh, San Diego, California right now. And, and so they, they started the process of restoring this ship. And the Queen Mary was known for these like funnel-type stacks that it had. And so in the process of the restoration, they were taking these stacks off of the Queen Mary. And they, uh, for, for several of these stacks, they set them on... Uh, they set them on the shore line, uh, on the dock. And as they set them on the dock... The stacks crumbled, crumbled. And what they found was is that these smokestacks 
The three-quarter inch metal in many of the parts of these stacks had been, had been rusted away for years and that they were being held up by years and years and years of being repainted. <laughs> years and years and years of being repainted. Sit on that one for a second, friends. May it not be our testimony when we, when we reach the judgment seat of God one day. May it not be our testimony that the faithfulness that we once served with has gone. But in order to keep up appearances, we just kept painting the outside. We kept the facade up. When, when the meat of it was really hit, when, when, the, when the strength was really relied upon then, we found out that we were a hollow shell. May our church not be this facade. May there be substance behind what we do. May the activities and the programs and everything that we do to follow God may be, may be something of substance may be real because of the one we serve, not because of how we serve. And that the one, truthfully, the one we serve is not ourselves. Can I warn you of something, friends? The church has gotten so faithless. Leadership in seminaries and leadership in evangelical churches have gotten so faithless that they don't even recognize false teaching anymore. They don't even recognize it. Unwilling to call it out. Unwilling to see it for what it's worth. And lambs are being led to the slaughter. Now I know that if you follow me on Twitter at times, I seem a little bit ornery and angry. But I want you to know, I, there are two things in my life, aside from sharing the gospel to non-believers, that I've, that I've taken on as my mission. And the first is this. Finding a home for Christians who feel homeless. Spiritually homeless. Making Vintage a place, other than, share, other than sharing the gospel to non-believers, making Vintage Church a place for Christians who feel like they didn't have a place anywhere else. But the second is this. Making sure that we do everything that we can to eliminate every stumbling block from those people enduring to the end. The leadership in churches have gotten so weak and little by little have been rusting away underneath that all that's left is a facade. They have worked years at keeping up the programs and structures and organizations that they've they failed to even check to see if the things that they are holding up are honoring or pleasing to the Spirit of God in the first place. Even though man is faithless, God is faithful. He is true to his word. He holds his people, and he will not waver. Every man will be judged by the way we handle that truth and how far we have wavered. From that truth. So I want to ask you this one question that Paul kind of asked, but I'm asking more specifically. Are the teachings of God then on the wrong side of history 
or the right side of history. That's the, that is the thing for liberal people to do. I just want to be on the right side of history. Yes, what's been commonly accepted for the last 20 or 30 years as opposed to the last 2,000 is going to be the right side of history. You're right. You're right. Yeah, sure. Excuse me, more than 2,000. Are, are God's teachings about homosexuality, are they on the wrong side or are they on the right side of history? What about the roles of women as mothers and caretakers of the home? What about our responsibility to raise our children and not co-opt it to the government? Or our responsibility to examine everything and determine whether everything is either physically healthy or spiritually healthy for us? As an anti-God culture becomes increasingly louder, and diametrically opposed to the things of God, will we find that God is the one on the wrong side of history or the right side of history? Paul puts it in a way that you need to hear, and you need to just take this and be blown away by it. Paul said, is God, or, Paul said, is God unfaithful? And he said, by no means, may it never be. And then he says this, and this is huge, and this is something... Listen, just keep repeating it in your head as you're trying to work through this culture, as you're trying to work through the things of the world as compared to the things of God. He said, by no means let God be true, though everyone were a liar. Listen to this, friends. This is exactly what Paul is saying. He's saying if you could not find another single person in the world that approved and that confirmed the things of God, still that would mean that every single person in the world was a liar and that God was true. If you, cannot, if you cannot find one single person in your mommy group, if you cannot find one single person at your work, if you cannot find one single person in your family that confirms the things of God, it does not make the things of God less true. And so as it becomes harder and harder to follow and to trust and to understand and to acknowledge publicly the things of God, we must become ever so vigilant to keep that statement in the forefront of our mind that every man be a liar and that God be true. That we don't need or seek the approval of mankind as it pertains to the things of God because God has already approved of what he said or he wouldn't say it. Friends, we don't need to be more like the world. We don't need to be more relevant. We don't need to be more um, um, syncretized. Not synchronized, syncretized. We don't need to be more relevant. We need to just trust that the God we serve is sovereign and therefore everything he does and says is right. Even if the whole world is against him. Hey, and by the way, a good sign that he is right, is that still with as much hate as he receives, with as much destruction that has come his way, he's faring pretty well. He's faring pretty well. His Bible still stands as true. People are still being saved in massive quantities. Lives are being changed. He's got more enemies than anyone in this world. And yet he's really exceedingly 
doing well more than anybody in this world too. Let everybody else be a liar and God be proven true. Psalm 51 verse 4 confirms this and this is the verse he goes to at the end of verse 4 of Romans 3. He says that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. That you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. Let everyone else be a liar and let God be proven true. And that's what we hold to, Christian. That's what we hold to as we follow him in an ever-increasingly hostile world to the things of God. Pray with me. Lord, you're good and you're holy. And those two things about you make you worthy of serving, make you worthy of more honor than we could possibly um, drum up or give. Lord, that we may give our lives, though, as an offering to you, holy and acceptable, which is our reasonable act of worship. Lord, that we would love you, that we would follow you, and Lord, that we would entrust everything that we have to you and you alone. You are so good. And your word is true. Help us not to take for granted the embarrassment of riches that you have given us in the Spirit of God. Help us to lean into him, trust him, to be more like you every day. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.